Welcome to Breaking Paradigms, a podcast where we talk about global perspectives on spatial planning in practice and theory, by Constance Frech and Sarah Kuschel. Today, I want to talk about knowledge transfer, specifically knowledge transfer in planning from south to north. This is a think piece. I did my master thesis on the subject, and ever since my days living in Lesotho, as you heard in the first episode, I have been wondering about the topic. South to north is definitely the road less traveled when we talk about knowledge transfer, and not just in terms of planning. But before we jump into the topic and what I deduced the North can learn from the South through my research in Tanzania, I want to look at some definitions. As you already heard, I use the terminology Global South and Global North, and not other terminology. This is done on purpose and stems from the reality that the definition of the terminology encompasses a wider truth than most other names. The Global North is by definition a position which takes advantage of the Global South. Glocal, a German nonprofit working in power critical education and consulting, frames it this way. The Global South marks a disadvantaged position in the global system, socially, politically and economically. In my opinion, ecologically should be added to this list. But the main concept is there are positions of advantage and those of disadvantage in this world. And of course, there are different scales to it. On the country level, you have nations in positions of advantage and disadvantage. But the same happens within a country, a city, maybe even down to the district level, depending on the district. The reason I chose this terminology for my thesis and continue to use it is because I find it more accurately describes the reality we live in on this planet. If you have ever traveled to another place, let's imagine the US, by all standards of economy, a very wealthy nation, there are places where people live beneath the poverty line, within secure tenure, in ecological wastelands, and it doesn't matter what the projected GDP is. And there are researchers describing these phenomena like Pickett and Wilkinson who contribute this to inequality rather than economic wealth within a state. So what is the relevance of the concept of Global South and Global North for planning? In planning, we often focus on the boundaries we draw ourselves and think in container spaces. In my experience, you can distinguish different levels of exploitation and different levels of disadvantage, which are usually not applying to a whole country or even a whole city, but to very specific spaces. So when we think about planning, we need to see the complexity of space, the complexity of the needs, and also the complexity of the benefits. The latter is especially true when it comes to spaces which are not inhabited by humans or are livestock or are used by humans in any capacity. As these spaces, although hugely beneficial to the environment and our general quality of life, cannot advocate for themselves. Being of the Global South means coming from a disadvantaged position to the negotiating table. And this easily paves a road to vulnerability. I wouldn't say they go hand in hand, but they can contribute to one another. Since vulnerable spaces without advocates are often disadvantaged. 
Now I want you to test the definition yourself. Think of a prosperous, resilient space near you. What advantages can you identify? Why is it a positive example in your mind? Now think of a vulnerable space near you. What does it look like? Gray, brown, green? Why is it vulnerable? What makes it different to the prosperous, resilient spaces near you? What disadvantages can you identify? And this is just your local reality. You can scale this up to the level of nation states. What are the disadvantages? Lower GDP, rapidly growing cities, lack of housing, less voting power in international organizations, paternalistic or discriminatory patterns and systems, values or data which are not measurable with the tools designed by the North. The latter we hope to discuss in our episode on the data gap, but this will not be the focus of this episode. However, I hope through this little exercise, you've gained a closer understanding of the terms. Now, the next step for me was asking myself what I see as the biggest challenges of spatial planning. Major trends or circumstances that impact how planning is done and I identified urbanization and rapidly growing population, pluralistic societies, political and administrative structures, limited financial means, design of planning processes, and climate change. This list is not exhaustive, but it gives some input on what shapes spatial planning at large. But when it comes to addressing the challenges which these topics pose, usually we look to the North for the answer. When you think of development cooperation, generally your mind goes to a country of the global North supporting one of the global South, sending the financial contributions, know-how, and other means to fulfill the intended purpose. And the North, and I would even argue the world, at large does not really question that. Why? Because it's grown from a long history, tradition, etc. However, I wanted to take the road less traveled. I was wondering about this practice and why it is rarely questioned. The oversimplified answer, of course, is the power structures and systems. But let's jump into the nitty-gritty in order to test my theory that the North can learn from the South. I went ahead and did research in Mwanza, Tanzania, specifically on a program called the Community-Based Infrastructure Upgrading. I visited two places in Mwanza, Igelegele and Ipuli, as well as the Mother Project in Hananasif in Dar es Salaam. The reason these spaces would be considered as Global South is mostly due to the fact that they have insecure land tenure and infrastructure needs of the community have not been met. Tanzania, as many countries, has a long history of dealing with informal housing. Starting with slum clearance and resettlement programs in the 1960s, up to now with different types of service on site and upgrading projects. I just looked at one program, and I looked specifically into the community-based infrastructure upgrading, 
because it is a nationwide program and similar projects are going on in Mozambique and Kenya, so there is already knowledge transfer south to south. Additionally, there were no stakeholders of the Global North directly involved. And since its inception in the 1990s, it was evaluated and further developed. And it was founded on the principles of gender mainstreaming and participation. The process starts with an application from the community and follows many phases that always include the community directly or indirectly through an elected committee. Different tools and methods are used which facilitate a very comprehensive but low threshold process. It gives an opportunity to create ownership and patterns for every member of the community to be involved through in-kind contribution and education. As much as I was impressed by the program, I also saw that there are downsides, just like in any other formalization process. However, we will not go more in depth on the pros and cons of formalization and rather do that in another podcast. Nevertheless, the community-based infrastructure upgrading is definitely one worth looking at, as it offers solutions and ideas to challenges faced both by the North and the South. So after hearing the accounts of the local communities in Mwanza who were following the process, I found six lessons learned that the Global North could entertain more so in their own planning. First, mapping creates clarity. Countries of the Global North, and in general, spaces of the Global North, usually have no lack of maps, and land disputes are less common or at the very least have more clear legal guidelines or agreed-upon structures to follow. However, mapping can be a crucial tool in understanding the space as a community. In the community-based infrastructure upgrading, there are several instances of mapping. Firstly, the project is mapped out for the community. Everyone gains the knowledge of the necessary steps and therefore has a better chance of understanding the decision they make when entering the program. A more direct step of mapping is the so-called community mapping, which involves the community in setting boundaries and assigning spaces. This has the added benefit that the community gets to explore what spaces there are and which purposes to assign them, rather than just looking at tradition, structure, and ownership. The needs of the community become the central focus point and create a sense of ownership. Obviously, certain limitations are observed, such as infrastructural or natural boundaries, but generally the community gets to explore the space with fresh eyes. Secondly, inhabitants are experts. Participation can be quite controversial because it needs appropriate facilitation, clear objectives, and realistic expectations. Some of the main criticisms with participation processes, which other planners have voiced or I realized myself, are putting participants in situations they can't or don't want to fulfill, either by putting too much stock in their knowledge or not giving them a clear outline how far their participation can go. And secondly, it usually seems that the same people are participating over and over again, while more marginalized groups are not included, at least not to consider it adequate representation of the neighborhood. Additionally, when you plan spaces which are supposed to open up for newcomers, you come to an impasse, as usually you can't know them. 
Now, ideally, planners manage the process and try to give everyone a seat at the table according to the objectives of the project. But realistically, that's just not possible. This is worsened by the fact that most people who are participating in planning their own spaces are put in positions they cannot adequately assess. For example, if you are a carpenter and you studied carpentry, but all of a sudden you are asked to be a farmer and the expectation is that you make decisions to have the best produce, you might reach your limits. You have, of course, tasted produce and you probably know a bit about plants since you work with wood but you'd be out of your depth. However, if you were given some classes and assistance, maybe you could at least have an informed opinion and even start making some smaller choices, or bigger ones. In the project I visited, there was a very clear focus on teaching the community planning competences, so they can not only voice their opinions, but have the tools to make informed decisions about their settlements. This way of empowerment, however, needs a lot of investment by planners. And unless someone gets inspired to get a full-on education as a planner, they are still very much needed during this process. The third point is informality can be the base. Informality is nothing new. It happens everywhere. In Austria, you find unlicensed buildings in green-zoned areas, community gardens and corals on fallow land, just to name a few. There are different approaches to deal with informality. You can take a legalistic stand and remove everything. And don't misunderstand the point here is not to defend every structure. However, in the systems of many countries of the global north, the gold standard is the economic output. This means that social, cultural and ecological costs and benefits are usually not as incremental. This is especially noticeable in spaces of temporary use. Licenses are handed out to non-profit or for-profit organizations, especially when there is the benefit of rehabilitation or no additional cost attached to it. So even though a lot of temporary licenses are handed out, the path to legal establishment sometimes is overly complex or downright non-existent, because it's only seen as a temporary situation which can later be added back into the market. However, the community-based infrastructure upgrading program is seeing paths beyond the status quo. It can be a great base for a culture of cooperation and create innovation and inclusion that otherwise is not possible to establish. This is the benefit of informality. Point number four is local expertise and material saves long-term costs. Limited financial means are an important topic in planning and building. But very often, the discussion doesn't expand beyond economics. In the community-based infrastructure upgrading, there are two key factors which allow low-income neighborhoods to participate. Education and in-kind contribution. This means local people who are not following a profession or do not have the financial means due to their circumstances are not automatically excluded. Obviously, there is an additional burden. Nevertheless, this is an opportunity for individuals and the community. Building expertise on site has a sustainable impact, since ecological and social costs and risks can be mitigated much more directly. Giving a community the tools they need to maintain their settlement has the advantage to sustain cultural heritage, reduce dependencies, and create employment opportunities 
for those who otherwise would not be able to participate in the process. Therefore, in the project in Mwanza and Dar es Salaam, the inhabitants had the opportunity to either pay for their share of the project, this is divided into installments and lower income in general means lower installments, or get training and participate themselves. To circumvent bureaucracy, the materials for building are sourced locally, which makes it possible to create faster fixes, support the local economy, and establish local value chains. In the north, outsourcing is very common, but having a hands-on approach could mitigate risks and have long-term ecological and social benefits. The fifth point is decentralization creates ownership. In the north, we are often far removed from actual processes. The political and administrative apparatus is more something you contribute to with your taxes and in elections, but direct participation is uncommon and reserved for a small elite. You usually find yourself in the thought process, I pay my taxes so the state should fix it. Of course, that means contracts and usually humans are doing the work, but not in terms of directly fixing an issue yourself. Tanzania is in a very specific situation, as it has an extremely decentralized administrative system, which goes down to the so-called 10-cell leader, who represents about 10 households. This is not an exact measure, but a guideline, and has an official position in the system to represent and communicate between their constituents and other political and administrative structures. It shows that responsibility can be distributed and it makes politics more approachable and accountability more pressing, while direct participation is normalized. During my research, Amtal Lida told me one of the reasons the participation works so well in his community is because they know things change if they show up. The key to me seemed that measures of communication were taken and structures created which are appropriate and understandable to the public at large. The community-based infrastructure upgrading, in particular, does a great job at making something complex into an understandable and low-threshold process. And last but not least, inclusion is an attitude. There is a multitude of mainstreaming ideas, but they can be perceived with apprehension. It happens both in the global north and in the global south, whether we talk about gender, ethnicity, disability or other identifiers. Planning with and for a more complex target group, especially if you're in a position of privilege, needs additional effort. I think in the Global South you can see firsthand how communities learn to deal with, embed or adjust ideas to fit their local context. Generally speaking, we must acknowledge that there are varying degrees of success for these approaches around the world. But something I found very interesting in my interviews with the planning committees was that even though inclusion was demanded by a top-down structure, it managed to achieve its goals beautifully on a local level and created a paradigm for the planners. I also realized that openness and normalization starts with the sensibilization of planners who implement it. If you want to hear more perspectives on this topic, check out the episode about planning education. These six points are just a snippet of possible lessons learned, but I want to point out that this was done in a research paradigm by the Global North, and that does limit the findings. 
we need to create more tools which better capture the realities, but also the opportunities for disadvantaged spaces. Because as Schmidt Kallert put it in his book, phenomena which used to be typical for the global south are more and more present in countries of the global north. So let's try and break our paradigms and look to the south for solutions. And if you want to challenge some planners for a discussion, ask them why phenomena of the global south will become more present in the north. What practices and theories you've learned about or simply leave us a comment about your experience in learning from the Global South. This was Breaking Paradigms by Constanze Frey and Sarah Couchier. Be part of the conversation. Connect with us on Facebook, YouTube, and at breakingparadigms.org. Special thanks to our supporters on Patreon. Thomas Fischer. If you like what we do, consider supporting us and join our Patreon community. Content and editing by Constance Frech and Sarah Couchet. Sound design by Didac Barroso and Florian Frech.